all my life I've been waiting for, I've been praying for, for the people to say that we don't want to fight no more. There'll be no more war and our children will play. Sayings modest on you. We hear a solution to violence and our guest today, Stalin Vinhagen, are also praying for the one day there will be no more war. Hi, folks. You are listening to Solutions of Balance. Here is on WFMP 106.5 FM. I'm Jim Johnson here with Jamie McMillan. We are your hosts for Solutions of Balance, a program of and sponsored by WFMP Radio. Solutions of Balance is part of WFMP Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do this by emailing us at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guests this hour is professor, researcher, author, and activist for nonviolent resistance, globalization, and social movement, Dr. Stalin Vindicogan. Welcome, Dr. Vindicogan, to Solutions to Violence. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. We look forward to learning about your work for nonviolent direct action and, and civil resistance. Stefan Vindicogan is currently living in the community of Valley Co-housing, where he is visiting the Native American Pocuntan homeland in Quinetic River Valley on Turtle Island, Massachusetts. Vindicogan is the endowed chair of the study of nonviolent direct action and civil resistance professor of sociology at University of Massachusetts Amherst and University of He is co-author of the book series on resistance studies. He is editor of the journal Resistance Studies, director of the Resistance Studies Initiative, and a member of the steering group Resistance Studies Network, the Nonviolence and Peace Movements Commission, International Peace Research Association, and the Nordic Nonviolence Study Group. His latest book is Conceptualizing Everyday Resistance, a Transitory Approach. You can find his blog on resistance and Facebook. Welcome again, Dr. Ben Hagen. Now, we shared a bit with our listeners about your professional life and accomplishments, but what were your early experiences in life? What impresses you now about those experiences? And what brought you through those experiences, what your professional path today? Thank you, James. Well, I'm brought up in a family with subcultural ideas and way of life. It was a hippie family with new age religion, so I was very early on a vegetarian, Uh, although I felt it like I was growing up in a vegetarian dictatorship. I learned about Gandhi and uh, Martin Luther King from early on. So in a way, you could say that I have been drafted into nonviolence and the kind of activism I'm doing. I became an activist already when I was 14, and I've continued like that. My work within academia has started as a result of me feeling that we very often become ineffective or create new types of problems like uh, sectarianism uh, within our movements, or we are unable to create uh, broader alliances. So I wanted to learn more from previous movements. So I thought the combination of research and activism would help the movements. So that's what I've been working on since the 1990s. Dr. Benningogan, you did some research on nonviolent resistance, globalization, and social movement at the School of Global Studies, Department of Peace and Development Research, Gottborg University, Sweden. Your 2005 PhD explores the sociology of nonviolent action. Why sociology? In what ways does sociology help explain nonviolent action? I wanted to do a, a PhD on uh, how can we do effective mass civil disobedience more empirically oriented, but but I realized when I was uh, digging deeper into how we understand uh, nonviolent activists that we don't really have 
suitable theories to explain what nonviolent action is all about. And a lot of the um, understandings of people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King tends to be somewhat religious in their perspective. So I wanted it to be updated with uh, modern social theory. And since I was working within sociology, it made a lot of sense to take a sociological perspective of trying to understand what is nonviolent action. Basically, I came to the conclusion that the main figure within the research, Gene Sharp, has made an important contribution in understanding nonviolent action as being a matter of strategic power struggles. But that's only one out of the four dimensions that I outline, which shows the power of the nonviolent activism that is revealed through these social theories. So I think for those people that are not necessarily motivated from a religious perspective in their activism, this kind of social theory can help us to understand how nonviolent action could be made more effective than it is. So the Resistance Study Network, it's an organization for which you co-founded and are co-leader. You're a member of the Peace Transition and Development Scholarship Network of Transcend, the Nonviolent Commission on International Peace Research Association, and an associate of the Transitional Foundation for Peace and Future Research. These all sound as if you have something pretty basic in common. Share with us a bit about these organizations. In what ways are they related? I have been a member of several of these, but I'm continuing to be very active within the Resistance Studies Network, particularly. Well, let me put it like this, that I'm not so concerned about the name nonviolent action. I know that nonviolence is very often putting people off, particularly people that comes from another tradition. So I think the key thing is about resistance, what resistance can be and how it can be efficient in creating liberation for people. I think the research is clearly showing how it's unarmed or nonviolent resistance that is most effective in creating any kind of democratic change towards social justice. And I think that's the way to speak to people that are not already convinced on nonviolence from an ethical or a philosophical or religious point of view is to talk about what actually works in the struggle against systematic injustices, oppression, exploitation, and war. So I see the connection in the form that resistance is the kind of point where we can build broader alliances with workers' movements anti-racists and people that are fighting against ongoing imperialism and, and colonialism by showing what works, what could actually work for liberating people. We have seen in the unprecedented uprisings in, in the last year, both in the US and worldwide, an incredible longing for liberation among people. But we also see that they are very frustrated very often, that they often fail even when they look like they win, even when they topple governments, it's very difficult to create a different society. And I think that the tradition that was built around Gandhi and Martin Luther King and with other movements following that has a lot to teach when it comes to how to do this. But we're also stuck in some rituals, some ineffective methods, and that's where the research and the collaboration between activists and, and researchers comes in. 
what is your role as a council member of the War Resisters International? I've been very active in, in the War Resisters International for many years, particularly when it comes to develop handbook materials and trainings for people within movements. And War Resisters International is a global network, which is mainly consisting of people that believe that if we want to fight war, we want to fight the root causes of war. And they are connected to economic exploitation, to treating people as if they were objects within the economy, for example, through mining in the global south. So we need to connect economic, social justices, anti-racism with the fight against war, because war existing, we think, in a way of securing the uh, unjust distribution of privileges and resources in the world. So I'm trying, together with other people in the War Resistors International right now, to develop a handbook around how do we build constructive programs, which was something that was very dear to Gandhi, but that was not really taken up by the anti-colonial movement in India. Constructive programs is about how do we build the alternatives at the same time as we are resisting the systematic injustices and oppression that we are living with in the world. Sounds complicated. <laughs> well, it's, it's not so complicated in a way that, you know, if you want to fight an oppression, you cannot just get rid of an authoritarian system or an exploitative system. You also need to know what do you want instead. You need visions and experiments with alternatives. You need both a yes and a no in, in a struggle in order to succeed. It's pretty basic, I think, in that sense. You're currently a professor of sociology, a scholar activist, and in the inaugural endowed chair uh, in the study of nonviolent direct action and civil resistance at the University of Massachusetts. Jim and I have seen and participated in what we term nonviolent direct action, but there is clearly a lot to learn, know, and, and experience. How do you characterize nonviolent direct action and, and civil resistance, and what are some of the examples you can share with us? There are a lot of misunderstandings when it comes to nonviolent direct action, but I would say it's basically about fighting against violence without using violence yourself. That's, for me, the most fundamental idea that exists within the nonviolent tradition. It's a particular form of struggle where you're not passive. It's not just a matter of being without violence. It's not enough to just refuse to participate in war or, or violence. You also need to fight against it. And I think Gandhi underlined that very clearly. So it's an active struggle against war and the structures that makes war possible without using those types of violent means yourself. So the direct action part is to emphasize that you are going directly to the problem. You're not just protesting. When you protest, you appeal to someone else, to typically the government, to solve problems. But direct actions are trying to solve the problems yourself. So that's why the Filipinian invention of the name people power instead of nonviolent direct action, I think it's very appropriate. So we saw in the Philippines how they were overthrowing the military dictatorship of Marcos. And they've also done it other times after that when recurring corruption and problems arouse. So we have seen a lot of examples throughout the world. Actually, there are numerous of examples, particularly after 1945, of people overthrowing their dictatorships. We have seen that in South Africa. We have seen it more recently in, in Tunisia. We have seen it happen in Chile. We have seen it happen in Bolivia. We have seen it happen in so many uh, places in Eastern Europe at the end of the Cold War. So actually, there exist many, many examples besides the civil rights 
movement, besides the struggle against the Vietnam War, there are numerous examples. So actually, the question, I think, is more how do we make this form of nonviolent direct action or civil resistance more effective in actually achieving sustainable changes within the societies we live? Because we see today, for example, when it comes to India, that India is a very violent society with its own nuclear weapons and incredible injustices when it comes to the majority of most people. We have seen the right, the Hindu right, which is more or less a fascist movement to grow in in the country. So there is an endurance and a continuing problem with violent structures, the culture that sustains violence that we need to address. And I think that the kind of effectiveness we see in overthrowing governments and in changing certain policies and laws are just small indications of the enormous potential that exists with people power or civil resistance if we learn how to develop it and be more sophisticated in our strategies and experiences. And that's where the research comes in. That's where the experienced activists come in. If we collaborate, we can develop much more sophisticated ways of struggling. On the front lines of activism is, is one thing and that you're also teaching topics on nonviolence, direct action and, and civil resistance. In fact, don't get much blowback from the academic community, but what, what other sources and types of resistance to teaching nonviolence and, and resistance have you experienced? Correct me if I'm wrong, but you you believe resistance to oppression should always be forceful, but peaceful. Well, what about response to oppressive governments that use police and, and military action for oppressed people? Right. I have seen when it comes within academia that there are some blowbacks, but as you say, it's not much of that. There is a liberal tradition and, and an idea of academic freedom that uh, makes it possible for people like me to do uh, the work we do. But what we realize is it's difficult to get the funding, it's difficult to get the attention and interests of the wider academic community, because the academia uh, is historically and also now very much integrated into projects of uh, the nation state. And the nation state, as we know, is the one that is conducting wars. And then it's also very connected into the economic system in the world. Uh, we see that through the neoliberal uh, and business-like treatment of universities. So in that way, it's, it's hard to make something that is broader and resource-funded at the university. I would say a repressive tolerance for having critical and different ideas like this. Uh, I've also encountered blowbacks when it comes from some activist communities that are not so interested in you know, critical reflections on how they are maybe ineffective today or, or creating new power problems within their movements. Not all movements are interested to hear that kind of um, critique, even if it's a friendly critique that comes from a solidarity with the goals of the movement. So I've been literally thrown out from some activists' meetings because they don't regard me to be a real activist since I, I talk openly, both in lectures and with the mass media about problems that I see with, within movements. So then when it comes to um, societies that don't uh, pri pride themselves with being liberal democracies, but authoritarians, um, 
it's of course very much more difficult to conduct this kind of work. Um, we have seen how people just by gathering in um, reading groups, reading nonviolent action material have been arrested in, in um, South Africa and, and um, or Southern Africa, I mean, in um, Angola, Namibia. We have seen it happening in, in Zimbabwe, where people just by being interested in this material will get arrested. So it's much more difficult than you need to conduct much of that work underground and sometimes in exile. But people are impressively brave, continuing to try to develop and understand how to do this form of struggles. And there is a great interest among activists around the world for these kind of methods. That's what we see in the different uprisings from Hong Kong to Chile to the Middle East, where people are doing uprisings in a way that are unprecedented. And you know, you should note that in the 1970s and 60s, there was a very strong belief in the armed struggle. People believed that guerrilla war was the only way to kind of create really a revolutionary change. That has totally shifted. Today, radical movements are using nonviolence or civil resistance. So it, the idea has really spread. But I would say that the knowledge is still superficial. The knowledge of the strategies and the tactics and the experiences of, of movements are still not there. That's why teaching, research, collaboration between academics and activists are so key. There's military dictatorships that rule nations like Guatemala and uh, military coups have been orchestrated by the U.S. taking out uh, democratically elected governments. What, what successes have you seen and what would you suggest would be actions for people to react peacefully to a military oppression or action? Okay, so firstly, rightly as you say, it's very often a foreign intervention and, and support that matters very often from Washington, but not only, also from, from other parts of the world in supporting authoritarian regimes. So obviously, if you want to do something against the situation in a country like Guatemala, you would have to do resistance both within the U.S. and in Guatemala. That's the first point. The second thing is that you need to always look at every situation in context. So you need to do a power analysis from where do then the, the regime in a country like Guatemala get their resources economically, politically, and in, in other ways. Then you are looking at what can you do in order to undermine these resources of the regime. You could do that by having a clear strategy, which is building on, on um, where your strength is as a movement at the, at the moment, through strikes, for, for example, or boycotts, or civil disobedience, or collaboration between the, the opposition in, in Guatemala and the United States to together target particular blatant, clear injustices that can also gain media uh, attention. But you also, when you do this, you need to look at where are the movement right now, how its capacity, how can it get broader and build a, a broader alliance in the country and outside. So you need to have tactics sometimes that concentrate the activists uh, on a square or in, in a capital. But if there's a very repressive government that do mass arrest, and, and mass killings, you need to disperse the 
resistance. And that's what happens, for example, through boycott. Let me give an example. In India, they have a tradition that is very powerful, which is called hartal, which means that people are not just boycotting something or striking, but they are staying at home. So you empty the streets. And it's very difficult even for a military regime to go home to people and arrest them and say, you didn't go to town and buy today. So it's, it's a relatively safe form of mass resistance, which doesn't concentrate people on a square where you will be very vulnerable for attacks from the military or, or police. So you need to kind of know how to play this in a dynamic way, looking at the strength of the movement and see how you can push and undermine certain key resources of the regime and build victories and attention like that, and in that way spread the movement. So I, I'm always saying that a victory of the movement is not necessarily to change a law or to overthrow a government. The victory of the movement is if a campaign is leading to a stronger movement for tomorrow. If the movement is, is gaining strength and experience, it's doing right. It's building success because it's going to be a very, very long struggle. Even after the government is falling, it's going to be a continuous struggle because of this international influence from Washington and other places. The International Monetary Fund, the World Bank and all that will put a lot of pressure on a new regime. So how do you create a difference for ordinary people that have been taking the risks and, and suffering in the struggle? Well, you need to continue and build a movement that is strong enough to actually change society, not just the government. It's a life commitment. It's not a one-time choice. No, it's, it's a long struggle because the systems of violence and exploitation in the world are many and yeah. they're interconnected and, and they're often globally linked through elite networks. So it's, it's complicated. And you know, we should be very aware the regimes in the United States and in Iran and in, in Russia, they, they are reading the books about nonviolent direct action and civil resistance. They are studying the methods. They are getting much more sophisticated in how they're dealing with with, with these movements. So we need to be on top of that. Absolutely, yeah. So Stalin, for decades, you've been a movement activist, peace movement activist, and a teacher in conflict transformation, civil disobedience. The research says since 1980, as an educator, organizer, activist in several countries, you have participated in more than 30 nonviolent civil disobedient actions, and you have served a year in prison as a result of those actions. The imprisonment was for a nonviolent direct disarmament action against a Persian II missile launcher in the former West Germany. In the United Kingdom, you tried to disarm a nuclear trident submarine. Tell us about the plowshares movement and in particular the Persian the plowshares disarmament action. Right. So when I got engaged and got more politically aware of the imperialism and, and the um, apartheid society we live in globally where people are fighting with very high costs in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, we were a group of people in Europe from the 1980s and onwards that felt that we also need to have a radical struggle against the means that are used by the uh, rich countries in the world with nuclear weapons and all kinds of armament to keep down other countries in the world. For us, it was a, a liberation movement against the direct violence of these nuclear weapons to fight against their role within 
the structural violence of the world. So we thought of a quite direct uh, way of doing this by um, saying that if governments are not taking up and honoring the international human rights and the the laws that are saying that uh, the use of nuclear weapons is against humanitarian law, then we should, as citizens, go directly into the factories and the bases with hammers and bolt cutters and start the disarmament ourselves. So that's what the plowshares have been doing since the 1980s in close to 100 actions now in the world. Uh, the idea is to to symbolically and directly with your hands uh, start the, the disarmament and inspire other people to do the same. Then you break the law, but you also are claiming that you're acting on behalf of the international humanitarian law and you are destroying property, but you are then able to, in court, argue against what is really the property rights of having mass genocidal weapons, right? So it's possible through that to confront and challenge the legality and the legitimacy of these kind of mass genocidal threats that nuclear weapons actually are. And at that time, when we were struggling in the 1980s, we were arguing that this is really internationally unlawful to have nuclear weapons. But we were often dismissed. We were put in prison, although there were some judges that argued that we were right. Today, United Nations has declared nuclear weapons illegal. So it is is something that exists in the world and nation states keep them, but United Nations has declared them uh, illegal. So we should then, I think, act in such a way in United States and Europe, in, in China and, and Russia, uh, in Israel, in India, in Pakistan, against these nuclear weapons in a way that we are taking up what I think is the only source of real change, which is people power, that, that people take these messages from, from United Nations serious and we start the disarmament ourselves. Unfortunately, this movement has been weakened in, in later years and it's not so strong right now, but it was a very strong movement in the 1980s and um, early 90s. And we actually actually won uh, several cases where the, the judges were on our side and people were acquitted. And with my next question, were those litigation charges dismissed? Yeah. Okay, so what do you see as tangible results of the Persian Plowshares actions? Well, to begin with, it uh, gave people inspiration and hope of the power of nonviolent direct action, right? Number two, it led to the abolishment of uh, nuclear weapons in some places in the world. I'm not saying that the plowshares were reason for that, but it was part of also the international diplomacy and, and pressures on countries to abandon it. So we have seen countries in former Soviet Union that have uh, abolished their capacity. We have seen it abolished in South Africa. Uh, thirdly, it's led to an international pressure on nation states to declare nuclear weapons illegal. As I said, United Nations uh, declared it illegal. And I would say that we were one part 
of many others struggling against nuclear weapons that led to that. But to me, the most important part was how it was building a more militant, radical type of resistance within the United States and Europe where we need to take risks and struggle against those violent systems that are keeping an unjust world order in place. I'm not saying that we're successful in reducing the number of nuclear weapons particularly, but the struggle is, as always, long. And this form of direct action can only be part of a wider, broader alliance if it's going to be people power and, and really effective. So actually, the plowshare was uh, was one of my experiences that led me into academia, feeling like we were doing these, what I think, poetically beautiful actions that were really a challenge and inspiration for, for many people. But we didn't have enough of um, effective results. And, and that's also where I wanted to learn more of how do we build really effective movements. In, in terms of civil resistance, you like to describe it as a form of people power. How would you explain the role of people, activists, in terms of everyday resistance and constructive resistance? What's the difference between everyday resistance and constructive resistance? Or if there's a correlation, what is that? Right. So if you're on the one hand, have these very, very risky uh, actions that I just described with the plowshares, where people risk many years in prison. On the other hand, you have the everyday, more mundane, sometimes even hidden forms of everyday resistance when people are reacting to exploitative situations in their home, their neighborhood, or at the workplace by maybe working slower when there is no one surveilling them, uh, taking longer breaks, borrowing things at the workplace to do some work at home, or do private work at the workplace by writing private letters and so on, making copies for their neighborhood associations when they are at the workplace. Uh, these kind of things, all kinds of people are doing. Thousands, millions of people are doing it every day. And the thing is, I think that if we find ways of encouraging, developing, and inspiring inspiring people to do that kind of resistance in their everyday, I think that can be profoundly revolutionary, much more of a people power than these small actions of very committed individuals that are ready to sit in prison for years. If we combine the two things, dramatic cutting edge actions of high risk and everyday resistance, I think we're onto something very powerful. If we then add the constructive resistance, I think it's getting really, really interesting because Constructive resistance is about how do you find ways of resisting exploitative violent systems while you build up something at the same time. Personally, I think that's the most interesting form of resistance. And I would argue, and that's part of my conclusion in my PhD, that nonviolent action is essentially a matter of constructive resistance. That's what this uh, nonviolence is, is trying to do. So let me give an example here of a movement that we we normally don't associate with nonviolent actions. And that's the landless workers in Brazil, the MST. So the MST has since the 1980s been doing land occupations against one of the most unjust distributions of land in the world, where millions of people are poor and without land, whereas there are individual landowners that own lands that are vast as Belgium. You know, Brazil is big as whole Europe. So it's a really big place. So the, the MST, the landless workers, 
workers have been doing more than 2,000 land occupations since the 1980s. And what is more is that they're not just occupying the land, claiming the land for those that work on it, but those that are without land. But the thing is, they're building up their gardens, their uh, schools, their new housings, their new cooperatives, uh, ecological such, and decision-making committees on the land, running their own society on the land. So they're building up what they say is the new Brazil on the occupied land. So they're actually creating a radical pedagogies in their school, a more ecological and cooperative farming on the occupied land. So they are creating the alternative while they are resisting the unjust distribution of land, if you see what I mean. So it's a resistance while it's constructively building up an alternative. Alternative. They're making it physically viable and sustainable with, with a different society, not just talking about it in revolutionary programs of that after the revolution, we will have a new society, but they're doing it here and now. So that's very convincing for the poor and the people in that lives in the urban slums, in the favelas, to join the movement. So the movement is very strong. It's 1.5 million people that are active there. And here's the last point. This is super effective. You haven't heard about the revolution in, in, in Brazil, I'm sure. There is even a fascist leader there, Bolsonaro, right now. So it looks very bad on a national level, okay? But the MST, they have actually, through these local struggles, create a series of local revolutions that have distributed land and have got even legal recognition to so much land so that if you put all the land together, all the land they liberated since the 1980s in this way to local communities, it's a size almost equal to Cuba. So it's an enormous landmass they have liberated two communities that are creating new alternative societies. And it's happening now. It's been happening under Bolsonaro. It happened under Lula. So it's, it's an underground growing revolution that involves the everyday resistance of people living there, the constructive resistance and nonviolent direct action that they're doing. And for me, this represents, you know, <laughs> like a Cuban revolution once again. But this time... It's not nation state oriented, but local oriented, a network of local communities. And it's not armed like the Cuban revolution, it's unarmed. Because these movements, they're not pacifists because of ideological means or whatever. They're interested in Gandhi, but not particularly. They often talk about Che Guevara and, and so. They're Marxists, uh, liberation theology inspired. So they have learned through painful historical experience that if they take up arms, they will be crushed. It's by building an unarmed movement and broad alliances in society that they are able to protect their communities. They're being killed on a very high ratio. It's on average, one killed every every week. So there's a lot of violence from private militias, the police in massacres and all that against them. So they live a really, really difficult life. But they are successful because they see how it works here and now in how they do it. So I think for me, that's one of the most interesting nonviolent direct action movements in the world. And they are doing constructive resistance. They're building up with means that at the same time attack 
and undermined the land structure that upholds the economic elite in, in, in Brazil. Sorry for that long answer, but, but I think for, 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 for me, the MST represents a combination of nonviolent direct action, everyday resistance, and constructive resistance as a very inspiring example. Let's bring this discussion back to the United States. Because of the killings of George Floyd by the Minneapolis Metro Police Department and the killing of Breonna Taylor by the Louisville Metro Police Department, cities across the U.S. have experienced over a year of demonstration. Here in Louisville, Kentucky, the Breonna for Justice movement has lasted over a year. Even though significant numbers of white folks have participated in the movement, the movement was led mostly by African Americans. So we hear at Solutions to Violence, along with other organizations and like the Louisville Fellowship for Reconciliation, for example, supported the Brianna for Justice movement. The movement was mostly peaceful, but early on, there was some violence. How do we support a movement that demonstrates just cause, but contains some violence? Do we as white folks even have a right to criticize the movement led by black folks? Maybe we don't have a right to say anything at all, even though the violence does bother us some. What's, what's your response, Stalin? Well, this is a complex issue. And I would say to begin with that we cannot and should not criticize people that are trying to liberate themselves against oppression. We should stand in solidarity with them. And it's only when we're acting together that we can, when we are invited to, and when there are opportunities, we can raise our critical reflections uh, on things. It's only after showing our solidarity in our commitment to be part of their liberation struggle that we can do that. And I would say a couple of more things, and that is, to begin with, I don't consider destruction of property as being violent. I consider all kinds of actions that put people in fear and danger of their safety as humans as being potentially violent. Some of the the rioting might put people in fear of that, but I think it's very much a matter of of, uh, the white mainstream society being afraid of the disrespect for property rights that is putting up a lot of hard condemnations of these actions. Yeah. And secondly, I want to say that people that are doing a, a kind of rioting like that are often driven by a frustration of what can you do otherwise? What could work otherwise? I want to recall and remind us about what Martin Luther King said that um, during the riots that happened when he was still alive, they became even stronger uh, after he was murdered. But it was that the riots are a way and a means of those people that don't have other ways of acting, that feel powerless in relationship to the structures that they are struggling against. So I think it's a matter of providing clear alternatives and ways of influencing and changing society to show that other other things are possible and not to begin by criticizing. And then lastly, I also want to say that who is conducting the violence. I don't think it's the uh, even the rioters that are conducting the violence. It is the organized, militarized police force and the society that upholds the injustices with deadly violence 
and an armed violence that are conducting uh, the violence against people, both economically and socially, politically in the United States, which is obvious if you look on the average uh, property uh, of, of a, a black family and a white family in the United States. It's a systematic violence that happens structurally in this society, and it's backed up by a militarized police force. That's the real violence that is happening here. It's an action against capitalism, which is very strong in, in the United States. So it's, you know, it's that underlying uh, feeling, I think, of most people. Uh, going back to 2010, you were one of several initiators of a nonviolent direct action in the region of Gaza. You were a member of a coalition named the Swedish Ship to Gaza. The Gaza Strip is a 140-mile stretch of land located along the Mediterranean coast. It, it lies between Egypt and Israel. It's endured decades of protest, military operations, and violence as, as Israel and Palestinian Authority have both claimed the right to the Gaza Strip. Jerusalem is in the Gaza Strip, and it holds deep religious and cultural significance to the, both the Arabs and Jews. Yet, both Israel and Palestinians claim Jerusalem as its capital. Even so, Gaza is, is held separate by Israel, Israel from uh, the city of Jerusalem. In that region of Gaza in 2010, the, the Swedish ship to Gaza, which you were a member, uh, tried to, to break the Israel siege of Gaza. They, they did this with, a, with several ships, bringing hundreds of humanitarian workers and, and needed aid to the humanitarian crisis in, in Gaza. Now, I read a little bit about this. I know a little bit about it, but I'd like to hear your version and your your thoughts on uh, the uh, the action and the result of that action. Right. So I was active in the Swedish ship to Gaza and the international freedom flotilla to Gaza from 2008 to 2012. And as we were talking about before, in many conflicts, and particularly in a protracted, very difficult conflict like uh, the one in, in uh, Israel-Palestine, it's the injustices and the ongoing uh, military occupation of Palestine is upheld by the international support uh, from Europe and United States. So we saw it as uh, very necessary to collect an international group of peace workers, social justice workers, that were ready to break the widely internationally legally condemned blockade of Gaza. So it's only Israeli lawyers and, and some in support of uh, the Israeli occupation policy that are a man minority that thinks that this is legally uh, acceptable. Actually, Gaza is, is enclosed as the biggest outdoor prison in the world with a wall on the land by a sea blockade outside with uh, military force from Israel and from drones in the air. And it's a widely internationally condemned humanitarian crisis where actually the drinking water is unsuitable for, for humans today. It's a very, very difficult situation, all right? So we thought that we needed to find an action, a way to act in solidarity that was exposing the Ill illegality and illegitimacy of the blockade. So Israel is arguing that it's doing this in order to protect itself from international terrorism and Palestinian uh, terrorism uh, from Gaza. So we made sure that we had international ship with a mix of people, everyone unarmed, bringing humanitarian aid, and where we have been controlled by port authorities around in Europe that we didn't have anything of weapons on board. 
to support the so-called uh, terrorists in Gaza. So we were sailing through international waters in this way to literally break the blockade. So we were putting Israel into a dilemma. And this is a particular form of nonviolent direct action where you design the action so it creates a dilemma situation. Dilemma in this way that there are only principally two ways of dealing with the, that international blockade, uh, international uh, flotilla breaking the blockade. Number one, you board the ships and stop them, but then you have to do it on international waters, and that would be a, a breach against international humanitarian law. Or number two, you let them go through, but then de facto you are easing the blockade, right? So we had seen how small ships have been let through by, by, by Israel beforehand with international activists going through, because they could ignore small ships doing it. So we wanted to do it in a big flotilla with hundreds of activists to make it very public that we were breaking the law or breaking these in, this illegal law of the blockade. So in 2010, that led to that the Israeli government had night meetings to figure out what to do. And they said, and I quote, that they were put into a situation that was impossible. Whatever they did, it would be a problem. And unfortunately, for different reasons, they decided to do the worst thing. They didn't just board the ships, but they attacked the ships and they killed 10 of our activists and wounded 30 plus people very seriously. And it led to an enormous international condemnation of Israel. Even United States uniquely decided to not put in a veto against a, a statement from the Security Council of United Nations in, in condemning Israel. So Israel had a lot of problems after this, uh, acting in this way. So we, we I think we were exposing how absurd it was to protect Israel from so-called terrorism by attacking militarily a convoy of unarmed peace workers coming with humanitarian aid to, to break the blockade, right? So, yes, very much a hypocrisy. And this led to a series of events. Number one, the blockade was eased, so people had a better situation after this happened. Israel could not longer be so strict with its blockade, but we didn't succeed to abolish it. But it led to a lot of critique of Israel, and an Israeli blockade of, of Gaza became internationally exposed. So we decided to do it again, and we were trying to bring people that were internationally known, and parliamentarians, a mix of people on board the ships, even Israeli former soldiers were joining the ships that were now peace workers uh, trying to create a different relationship between Israel and Palestine. But in 2011, when we were doing this, and I was responsible for the nonviolent trainings of the activists, Israel had developed their strategy in a much more sophisticated way. They had worked together with the security branches um, in Europe and United States for several months, put Greece under pressure that we were embarking from. So they found a way, and I have listed 16 methods that they were using to stop our ships. They were using everything from underwater sabotage to uh, very uh, notorious inspections by the port authorities with absurd demands on our ships and accusations against our captains for a false breaking of, of laws and so on and so forth. So in the end, they succeeded to in this very decentralized way of stopping us to, so that we couldn't do anything in 2011. So 2012, we tried to do it again, but you know, it's very costly to raise 
uh, funds by by collecting uh, money from private people uh, in Europe and United States to pay for all these ships. We had only one ship in in uh, 2012 and i was on board then and we were seeing gaza we were very close we were still on international waters and we were boarded again but then israel had developed a method of boarding us uh, and using electric shock uh, pistols and harsh methods but not deadly force so with a smaller flotilla and a, a more restrained attack on the ship from Israel, we got very little of international attention. Uh, so in this way, Israel developed and learned. And they're very sophisticated in learning how to undermine um, a movement like this. Then we tried to develop a new creative tactic, which I think was beautiful. We were sending people in through the tunnels into Gaza to help people to build ships inside of Gaza. And the idea was to sail out of Gaza and sail out with export products. You know, they have flowers, they have olive oils and different things that it's very often ignored that the blockade is also stopping them from having proper trade, which means that they have an economic depression. People don't have jobs. There's no future for the majority of the Gazans that are under 20. So we thought this was beautiful because it will support the shipping industry in, in Gaza that has been weakened by the sea blockade. And at the same time, it would be much more harder for, for Israel to argue that they're protecting themselves from terrorist threats to stop export from, from Gaza, right? How could that be any kind of threat? I mean, they could argue that like they did previously, that even our wheelchairs that we were sending to Gaza that were electrically uh, powered, that the electricity could be used in some form of terrorist attack. They could argue that when we are sending cement to Gaza that was forbidden to, to bring in according to the blockade rules, that the cement could be used in some form of production of rockets to send to Israel. They could argue these kind of absurd things, but they couldn't argue that if they were sending out olive oil of, of flowers, that that would be a terrorist threat against Israel, right? So we thought that this was even a stronger dilemma action. But the problem was that during the um, so-called war uh, between Israel and Gaza in that period after 2012, when Israeli attack forces were attacking this outdoor prison of civilians living there, they were particularly targeting our ships. So they were bombing the ships and they didn't just do it once, but they did it twice when we were trying to build up the ships again. So that was proven to be impossible for us to do as well. And after that, there has been a lack of creativity in developing uh, these methods. And I think this is a, a good example of how you can be very creative as an activist campaign with your strategy. But if you're not able to kind of creatively develop and be part of a dynamic of it, you will have, a, if you have a sophisticated opponent like the Israeli government, it's very difficult to sustain the momentum of such a campaign. Campaign. So unfortunately, that is not really uh, going well anymore. Kellen, you mentioned the number of books that you, you've written. Is it correct that you've written eight books and edited some of those? It's actually 12 now, but yes. You've also done numerous articles reflecting the life and research and, and activism of your, your life. Among those is one article written by M.J. Sorensen titled Nonviolent Resistance Culture. 
uh, published in 2012 in uh, an issue of Peace and Change, a journal of uh, peace research. Of that article, an abstract by Wiley Online Library states, the authors suggest an innovative model of three strategies for analyzing the cultural aspect of a nonviolent struggle. What is, it, what is it about culture that influences nonviolent resistance? And, and on the other side, what is it about nonviolent resistance that influences culture? Give us some examples. Right. To begin with, we have to recognize that the, the context and the culture is very different in like Saudi Arabia or in India or in Sweden or United States, or depending on what state in the United States you're doing it, it's, it's very different, right? And it's very important to understand the culture where you're doing nonviolent direct action because you're trying to build people power. You're trying to build understanding, at least sympathy from a majority, but also commitment from a, a broader alliance of people. So you need to make yourself understood. And this is important because the way you act, the symbols you use, the, the type of people that are acting, if it's priests or if it's imams, if it's younger folks or older folks, will decide a lot how people understand your actions. So it's not just a matter of being understood in, in mass media, but being understood by people that witness and hear about the, the actions you're doing. And one way of using culture in this way with nonviolent direct action is about using the powerful symbols that already exist in our culture. So for example, the flag is, is in many cultures very important. So the MST, the Landes workers that I talk, talked about before, they have their own flag in the movement, but that's a flag of a man and a woman with working tools of farming in front of a map of, of Brazil. So it's very different from the national flag of Brazil. So that's one way of using it. And another way is the symbols of religion that is important. And in Brazil, it's obviously Christianity. And the, the landless workers are inspired by a radical version called uh, liberation theology. So they were using in many of their marches a cross uh, in the front of their marching because the cross symbolizes something for them of pain and suffering, but also struggle on behalf of the poor against an empire, be that the Roman Empire or be that some, some other empire, right? That's one way of using culture. That's the easiest way to use culture. A more difficult one is when you're trying to change the meaning of very important cultural symbols and elements. And the Kundai Kitmagar, a, a very powerful Muslim uh, movement that was active in the period of the Indian liberation movement in what we now call Pakistan. But at that time was part of India, was led by a person called Abdul Ghaffar Khan. And he was reinterpreting the tradition of the, the Pashtuns um, of being a warrior culture and being motivated by the Islamic readings of um, their religion. He was interpreting that as a nonviolent warrior culture, a nonviolent resistance culture, motivated by the same Islamic teachings, right? So they were organizing a very powerful
skillful and disciplined nonviolent army that even impressed on, on Gandhi because they were so disciplined. They were almost acting like an army. They were marching, they were having training camps, and they were famous among the, the British colonialists because they were so fearless and active in doing resistance and were never really some group that the British were able to crush. And they consisted of thousands of activists. So that's a very, very powerful way of shifting the cultural understanding of something. But that needs skill and inside knowledge and a lot of work. So there, there are different ways of working with culture, but I think we cannot ignore the meaning of uh, culture. And, and many of the people that categorize tactics, they ignore this. They think that the same tactic in different culture means the same, but it doesn't. Let me give a, an example of that. Wearing the hijab, the cover of your head and face in Saudi Arabia would be to act according to the, the rules of the power. That would be to be obedient to the rulings of the regime, right? But wearing the same headscarf in France or in Denmark is a resistance against the laws that are forbidding Muslims to do that, acting within being a minority of a Christian dominant culture. So the same wearing of clothes becomes a part of power or a part of resistance depending on the culture, how it's understood. So Colin, we're out of time. Yes. Um, for those of our listeners who would like to be in touch with you about options for asking or taking courses or other questions, how might they go about that? Uh, so the best thing is to look up our website, the Resistance Studies Initiative at UMass Amherst, where we announce not only our own, but other people's courses and resources and, and as best as we can, opportunities for activists to learn more. We organize workshops where we talk between activists and academics regularly. We have done it for Native Americans. We have done it for uh, Black Lives Matter. We have done it for Eritrean opposition. And we are doing it right now for activists coming from occupied territories like uh, Palestine or Western Sahara or Tibet. So every fall, we're having courses on graduate level and undergraduate level. And some of these courses are open for people globally to participate via Zoom. So it's well worth to check, even if you're not able to come into United States. United States often stop people from the global south to, to come in if you don't have the economic resources. We're trying to open it up globally, but of course, it's limited to the capacity, but we try to spread these type of courses to others as well. Ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. We want to thank Professor Researcher, Author and Activist for Nonviolent Resistance, Globalization and Social Movement, Dr. Stellan Vitagen, for being with today on Solutions to Violence. Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Today's program will be repeated August 9th, 10th, and 11th. To listen to our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org. Scroll down to Program Archives, and then scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features Stellan Vitagen. Thank you for joining us in our search for Solutions to Violence. I'm Jamie McMillan with Jim Johnson. We're your hosts for Solutions to Violence. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Until next time, please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same. Thank you for listening.